Welcome back to The Jacob Wool Show. For those of you watching live here on YouTube or listening thereafter on a podcast app, uh, it's good that we are still on podcast apps. The censorship regime has been something else. But today, uh, conspiring against the show was not big tech censorship or secret government boards calling for the removal of content, but instead we were held up by a Wi-Fi router that decided to go dead. Uh, that is what happened just a bit earlier. Uh, I got home uh, from a court date this morning in Maryland. Uh, we sometimes run into situations where these people we've busted on Predator DC file these crazy complaints for restraining orders. Sometimes they file criminal charges against us for uh, what they claim is harassment or other things. Uh, Maryland has this crazy system where you can just walk in and file your own criminal charge. If you can imagine such a thing, of course, they never go anywhere, but it requires us to wake up early, sometimes 5, 6 a.m., drive in the middle of Monday morning traffic and go appear at these things. But in any event, I get home and the, the Wi-Fi router is just dead. I mean, just just totally dead, just nuked. So um, thankfully, I had a, a spare. I located the spare and uh, and plugged it in. I had to, of course, call into Verizon and uh, figure out how to get that all working um, because they don't just let you plug it in. You have to call them. So in any event, here we are about 90 minutes late, uh, but I figured that I need to do the show today just because of the way that the news cycle is. If I do the show tomorrow, it's just not going to work. Uh, I have a feeling. I really try to only... I've never missed an episode uh, of this show or even going back to Man Up with Jacob. Well, we did 125 episodes there, one a week for uh, well over two years uh, before I moved independent. Never missed an episode. We had a couple that were late. Only were they late a uh, day or two, uh, two days in one case, a day late in, in another instance. They were only ever late when I either had a court date out of state that I just could not miss with all of this uh, crazy uh, Democrat persecution, or uh, in one case, it was a couple days late because I was basically deathly ill with pneumonia following the season two shoot of Predator DC. Um, we've had one episode late here with with Ohio. It's just, there was no way to do it. But here we are. Uh, I am Mr. Reliable. I don't miss shows. I show up, I make it happen. And I'm uh, very happy to join you here today. A lot to talk about. We're going to be discussing the Trump special counsel, a new special counsel, the title of this episode, Mueller 2.0. And that is shaping up. Uh, it looks like shaping up to be what we're going to have here is another Mueller situation. I'm going to take your questions. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the FTX situation, what's happening there. We have an update on Paul Pelosi that situation. Uh, but before we really begin and get into all this, I just want to tell you that I've got sort of an important tip for you right now. And sometimes we do delve into a little bit of life advice. Of course, I take your questions. You can send them in jacobworld.org slash contact. But <clears throat> really what I want to discuss is I would just caution you right now. Uh, in this environment, I would be extra polite. I would be extra non-confrontational with regards to things because there is a lot of economic pain out there. And uh, we're going to talk about Liz Holmes. That's right. We're talking about Liz Holmes, all of that. 
Uh, but what I'm going to say, uh, that's just a question in the live chat there. But uh, and by the way, if you're if you're watching live, share the links, uh, like the video if you can. We're we're late today. I apologize again because the Wi-Fi router crashed. But if you can share it and like it and all that, that helps. But what I was what I was going to say is be extra polite right now because there's a lot of economic pain in the economy. And when you get this level of pain, what happens is that people's fuses are very short. And there are a lot of people out there right now. It's now been revealed over a million customers uh, lost essentially all of their money in this FTX meltdown. There are other people who have lost all of their money to BlockFi, another one of these cryptocurrency exchanges. It looks like Coinbase could be next to go down. I don't think Binance is going to last very long. If you're on these exchanges, whatever your bets are in cryptocurrency or what have you, I'm not going to convince you to change those. It's not my mission to convince you to change those. You know what my position is on cryptocurrency. I'm not involved in it. I never have been. Uh, there's a lot of people out there pushing it on you. I'm not one of them. I don't think that cryptocurrency... I, I think that basically this, to be, to be very quick about this, the objectives of cryptocurrency are very noble ones. The use cases of cryptocurrency are use cases that would be incredibly useful to be able to solve and to to handle. The issue is that none of these cryptocurrencies have succeeded in delivering what they set out to deliver. They are not private and anonymous. They are not in any way that you can actually use them very conveniently or simply all that decentralized, really. It's just a ledger system to send money between banks, much in the same way that, uh, say, SWIFT is. I mean, you think of uh, how 90% of the cryptocurrency transactions work, or 99% of them probably. It's no different than SWIFT. You have one centralized party that is essentially a bank, even though it's not technically a bank per regulation oftentimes, and another one. And they call it crypto, but it's just a ledger system. That's all it is. It's no different than SWIFT. It's a, it's a way of sending messages. It, it, cryptocurrency fundamentally is software. It is software. That's what it is. It's software. What is it? What is cryptocurrency? It is software. That's what it is. These are software programs. They, they don't work in a terribly decentralized way. They certainly are not anonymous and private. Uh, there are programs out there, some of which you might know about, like Chainalysis, others of which you haven't heard of. Even programs like Maltigo have plugins that can track cryptocurrency payments. Um, if you want to attempt to make it private, well, then you have to go through these mixers. They, these mixers have been compromised by the FBI time after time after time, and the CIA and other intelligence agencies. If you want to know how the how the Department of Justice and others have been able to claw back money from hacks and other crimes, the way that they've been able to do that is because they've compromised many of these mixers or these uh, basically uh, they call them mixers or tumblers. They've been called over the years, which basically shuffle up the Bitcoin and make it anonymized. Well, those are run by a person and that person is sensitive to compromise. And whether it's the NSA, whether it's the CIA, whether it's the FBI, virtually all of them have been compromised by some three-letter agency. And so selectively, the three-letter agency sometimes taps them on the shoulder and says, hey, we're clawing this one back. Um, 
they're not exactly fast by any real standard measure. Um, and people talk about this idea of, well, Bitcoin is not fiat. There's only, what, 21 million that, that can ever be mined. This idea of mining is that you solve a, a problem that is a made up problem that rep basically requires brute force. Uh, at the very beginning, you could even do it with a CPU. I mined some Bitcoin and some Litecoin way back when, in when I was a kid. Uh, I guess this would have been 2010, 11, 12, I think. With even a CPU, my computer didn't have a GPU. IE could even do it with a CPU. At the time, at least Litecoin, you could mine with a CPU. But basically, GPU, graphics processing Graphical processing units can can solve these problems pretty pretty uh, efficiently, at least on a relative basis versus CPUs. And and the idea is well, it gets harder and harder to, and harder to mine, and so the value should, as a result of that, always go up. But what happens when the value doesn't go up? Bitcoin is now trading at a price as we speak, which uh, basically is now floating beneath the average cost to mine one Bitcoin. So right now it it will cost you more in most cases in generalized terms in electricity than, than you can make by mining one Bitcoin, even in the best of scenarios. So for a long time, at least for the last six, seven years, the only way that these Bitcoin mining operations could actually be profitable is if you were like in China or in Russia and you had access to a hydroelectric dam and you could plug straight in and get your power for free and you were in a cold climate so that you could let in the cold air to cool the GPUs. There's a guy in Utah who tapped into an unused natural gas deposit, basically an abandoned well, tapped into it, burned the power into generators free of charge and made some money. They shut him down and clawed back all the money the government did. Uh, so in any event, these things don't seem to solve it. This is just my perspective and you're welcome to disagree. And you, many of you know a lot more about this than I do, but my perspective has been that they don't do what they set out to do. As far as a store of value, they're far too volatile for that. As far as an actual currency, they're far too volatile for that. It makes it impossible to transact because if somebody sends you a payment and you don't immediately convert it to cash. You might lose six, seven, eight, ten, twenty percent 20% immediately. Or gain 20%. But the point is, it's it makes it very tough. Uh, the Litecoin I mined, I, you know, I think I, I finally got it onto uh, an exchange and was able to sell it. And it's not good news. Somebody points out here in the chat with um, for the CPU industry. No, or the GPU industry, rather, because, you know, the GPU industry was completely propped up by all of this. In fact, I remember in 2015... Um, I had to, you know, buy a couple of GPUs for some various computers we were building for trading purposes. And I, I bought the GPUs and you know, they, they were middle of the road GPUs, graphics cards and various NVIDIA graphics cards, as I recall. Uh, and it wasn't a big deal, but by the time you got into say from 2015, then you got into 2018, 19, or even 17, you couldn't get your hands on a GPU. You had to pay like four times retail because all these crypto people were buying them all up. 
So anyway, that's my perspective. Just to be clear for any of you who aren't aware, it's been my perspective for a while. You're welcome to disagree. The bottom line is that these exchanges, though, were the most practical way for people to transact between Bitcoin and cash. And they're going down one after another because of, in often cases, fraud. In other cases, leverage. In other cases, they were basically taking counterparty risk and trusting people that defrauded them. So between exchanges, relationships that blew up because of fraud and because of too much leverage operationally and otherwise. And so this thing is is melting down. Now, the question is, if Bitcoin goes much further below the cost to mine a Bitcoin, does it continue to work or not? And that's a question that I won't even pretend to have the technical know-how to answer. Most of you will have a better answer than I do to that question. Uh, so this person says, hopefully I'll be able to get into an RTX uh, 4080 or 4090 below 1K in the next year. Yeah, the GPUs are, are crazy. Uh, I'm rooting for crypto against the US dollar, not un-American. Well, yeah, fair enough. But what I'm saying is there's a lot of people out there that may have lost a huge percentage of their wealth because of all this. And, you know, I'm hearing more stories of kind of miscellaneous violent crime, cyclists being run off the road, just anecdotally. Uh, not the normal variety crime. I mean, I'm hearing strange stories about this. I'm hearing a lot more reports uh, from detective friends and firefighter friends of mine who are encountering more um, insurance fraud arson cases uh, where people essentially burn burn their own property, burn it down to file fraudulent you know, insurance claims. I'm hearing more stories of that. So the point is, just be extra polite out there. You don't know if somebody just lost 100% of their money and will just say, screw it, I have nothing to lose. Let's, you know, commit murder today or, or manslaughter or God knows what. So just, you know, keep that in mind and, and operate in the world with a bit more, with a, with a bit more uh, caution. Uh, somebody in the chat here uh, very, very intelligently asked, did the club shooter, the, the gay... Nightclub shooter have an FTX account? That's a good question. I, I'd be curious to know. And you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if he did. But we have a lot to talk about here. And, and beginning with this Merrick Garland appointment of a special counsel. And the first thing that struck me is that the special counsel is appointed, is appointed to basically look into both the Mar-a-Lago raid situation. Now, as close as I can determine, the FBI has basically already come out and said, as we predicted on this show, and 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 basically, not more than predicted, but reasoned, uh, was Trump just keeping mementos because he does that. He frames uh, things, he frames news clippings, he, he, he's basically a hoarder of mementos, and a certain percentage of them he hangs on his wall or keeps in his office or various places. But he hoards a lot of this stuff, and he always has, uh, going back a long time. I've heard stories where basically Trump would have people into his office uh, back in you know the, the the era before running for president, before getting into politics, like 2011, 12, The Apprentice was on the air, and he would hand people a frame. He'd 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 sign something quickly, and and then he'd put it. He'd he'd hand it off. One of his assistants, uh, I think her name was Rhonda. Is that her name? No, Rona, Rona, uh, who I dealt with on a few occasions, uh, would would put it in a frame herself. She she learned how to frame. And it was a copy of the Apprentice ratings 
And he'd sign it and give it to you as a gift because you were visiting. He'd say, look, it's the ratings. We're number one. So he's, he's always been this kind of a person with mementos and things. And the FBI basically said that. But nonetheless, uh, Merrick Garland apparently sees it appropriate to hire a, and bring in and appoint a special counsel. Uh, this was his announcement that he was doing that earlier in the week. Uh, here is what Garland had to say. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election, and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Such an appointment underscores the department's commitment to both independence and accountability in particularly sensitive matters. Okay, so we're just going to pause here. Normally, that would be true. I mean, what you'd want to do in something like this in standard procedure is, yeah, use a special counsel to separate out the possible uh, political influences from the Department of Justice or whatever law enforcement agency's investigation. That's what you would do. But unfortunately, what we have seen here is that there is a propensity for special counsels to run amok, to be used as political weapons, to be given broad scope, to be given unlimited budgets, to basically carry out witch hunts in which, on one hand, they perhaps indict people. Usually they only indict them for process crimes. They don't even actually determine any crimes. The process crimes themselves are often contrived. And of course, the, the bigger weapon that they have at their disposal is to just investigate people and force those people to hire lawyers to deal with the investigation, which you have to do. You have to hire lawyers and basically bankrupt people one by one by drumming up legal fees for them that never needed to exist at all. So he continues here. It also allows prosecutors and agents to continue their work expeditiously and to make decisions indisputably guided only by the facts and the law. Merrick Garland, I'll tell you, is, is one person who is very good at saying the right things. I mean, he is, he is spectacularly good at having speeches that are well-written uh, for these kinds of events. In fact, I will tell you, for instance, when he indicted the officers in Louisville, Kentucky, who um, were involved in the uh, situation with um, Breonna Taylor and, and you know, the drug dealer and her, she's dating him and she's got a dead body in her trunk and all of that. I got to tell you, I mean, the way that his speech was written for that press conference was such that uh, just not having looked into the case in a while, just having listened to the press conference... It was convincing even for me. I, I mean, he's very good at, at conveying these things and at saying the right things. And you, you listen to him and you say, yeah, I would like there to be an outside person who is guided only by the facts in the interest of, of, of you know, extracting this investigation from any political influence. That's what you'd want. Or you listen to the Breonna Taylor uh, press conference, you say, yeah, I don't want cops, you know, lying on affidavits to get search warrants and kicking in doors and shooting through walls and killing people or, or, or hitting them or shooting up their homes. You know, nobody wants that. Of course, I, I look into the facts of the Breonna Taylor case once again, refresh my memory and realize that nothing he said in the press conference or in those indictments is true. So there's that issue. And you run into the same issue here. 
So the special counsel that was appointed is a man named Jack Smith. Who is Jack Smith? Well, that question is not really straightforward to answer. It is really not. Um, uh, Jack Smith is somebody who has has basically floated around between entry-level to mid-level jobs. He has not advanced in his career up the chain of command at Department of Justice for one reason or another. He sort of gets to a, to a lower mid-level position, transfers to another U.S. attorney's office, transfers to a private firm, gets to a low mid-level position there, transfers back to a different U.S. attorney's office and exists in a low, uh, basically a lower middle-level position there and then moves laterally. So this is not a guy who is a social climber within the ranks of government or within the ranks of private law firms, frankly. Very few images of this man exist. Of course, he's got a generic name. So this is not somebody who has the huge, major reputation that precedes him in D.C. and in other places that, say, Robert Mueller had or James Comey had or even, say, Rod Rosenstein had. Not at all. Not even close. Uh, but here's what CNN writes about Jack Smith. They say, Jack Smith, a special counsel announced by Attorney General Merrick Garland on Friday to oversee the criminal investigations into the retention of classified documents at former President Donald Trump's Mar-a-Lago resort and parts of the January 6, 2021 insurrection, has been a longtime Justice Department prosecutor. So first of all, you look at this CNN blurb here. And the first thing you notice is on Friday. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, if we if you would follow along with the show, you know that when you have an important news item that you want to dump out there and you don't want it to carry for the entire week in the same way that you might want something else to carry, you dump it on a Friday, preferably a Friday afternoon. Uh, and then you don't have more weekdays to follow it up with primetime coverage. You go into Saturday. There's not much news coverage on a Saturday. Uh, not much A-grade talent in at the news networks on a Saturday. You get into Sunday. And if you're during, you know, say football season Sunday, you have, well, first of all, you got college football Saturday, which first of all, I don't follow. I, I don't have enough. Everybody's got their limit. Okay. As far as mental RAM, uh, that is to say random access memory. And I, I don't, I cannot follow sports. I don't care. I, I just don't. Uh, I went to Dodger games. Uh, with my with my dad, who's a big Dodgers fan, and a few Kings games back in 2017-18, a um, few in 16, but have not since then. I mean, I, I haven't checked the score of a game. I, I just don't do it. But the point is, the sports come on, and then by the time Monday rolls around, the public is not nearly as engaged as they would have been if you released a story on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or even a Thursday. It's important. So that's the first thing I noticed. But then you look at the scope of this investigation just on the outset, and you recall the Mueller investigation, how the scope broadened. And it went from, okay, we're looking to, into Russian interference to now we're looking into why Trump fired Comey. Was that corrupt? To now we're looking into obstruction of justice. To now we're investigating Michael Flynn under the Logan Act. So now we're looking into Donald Trump's taxes as he paid his taxes. Now we're doing basically an IRS audit. So who did he sell his home to in Florida in 2013? 
to what was going on at the Miss America pageant to what is Jared doing uh, with his father back in 2009. I mean, the scope just broadened and broadened and broadened and broadened endlessly, spending over $53 million by the time it was done. And this investigation already begins with such a miraculously broad scope. So you're looking at the classified documents. Can't the regular FBI do that? Haven't they already basically concluded that's not anything? And then January 6th. What about January 6th? What stone has been left unturned? I mean, there's, I'll tell you what stone has been unturned is the fact there's some 14 to 16,000 hours of CCTV and other video camera footage that has not been released to the public. And frankly, something like that is never released to the public. Just so you know, there's nothing unusual about that. First of all, how do you release that to the public exactly? It's terabytes and terabytes and terabytes of data. What, what does the Justice Department do? host a Dropbox folder. I mean, at some level, you, you people need to realize that, you know, some of these things are, are less practical than others. And another stone that's been unturned is the pipe, the pipe bomber, which, of course, I believe that I have identified. And I, I think I have identified based upon them bragging about, essentially just about bragging about doing it on Twitter and matching up the fact that, look, I'll tell you, there's a certain woman, it's a woman on the video, there's a certain woman who's tweeted all these things that basically sound like somebody bragging about it. And then I look at their eBay account and based on their eBay reviews, they bought all the necessary bomb making materials on eBay. Oh, and then by the way, I go to Nordstrom Rack and find that that same person who basically tweeted about bragging it and then bought all of the materials to make the new, almost pipe bomb. It wasn't ever going to work based on the way they constructed it. That same person, so they 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 tweeted about bragging about doing it. They bought the bomb making materials, essentially tweeted it, slightly veiled. Bought the necessary materials, and oh by the way, bought the same backpack seen worn by the pipe bomber and the same shoes. I turned all of this over to the FBI. I never heard back. Within two days after turning it over to the FBI, that person who had sent out some nine to 10,000 tweets stopped tweeting and never tweeted again for at least 10 months and then sent like two tweets. So we'll see. I obviously, I can't just name this person here because what will happen then is that I'll be sued by the person and they'll say that, that Jacob Wool sent people after me, blah, 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 and they'll sue me. Uh, so all I can do is, you know, share it with media, which I've done and share the evidence and share it with the FBI. At least that's all I understand that I can do right now. So otherwise, though, all stones have been un have been turned. I mean, maybe they can identify the pipe bomber. Uh, the pace of investigation will not pause or flag under my watch. This is what Jack Smith says. I will exercise independent judgment and will move the investigation forward expeditiously and thoroughly to whatever the outcome and the facts and the law dictate. Okay. A little bit about this guy. So again, he goes through various uh, from you know New York, New York County District Attorney's Office in '94, joins the Eastern District of New York in in '99 as an assistant U.S. attorney. Uh, he prosecuted cases including civil rights violations and police officers murdered by gangs, uh, according to the Justice Department. 
I don't think he basically has the Ivy League background to move up into the higher ranks. Um, it shouldn't matter if he was any good at the at his at his jobs. I mean, it basically only matters for your first job. But I could be wrong. It's just something where the guy just stays at the lower mid level and all of this stuff. Beginning in 2008, he worked in the International Criminal Court, the ICC, and oversaw war crimes investigations under the office of the prosecutor for two years. In 2010, he became the chief of the public integrity section of the Justice Department, where he oversaw litigation of public corruption cases before being appointed the first assistant U.S. attorney for the Middle District of Tennessee in 2015. So that is not a high-ranking position, okay? The real posh jobs at DOJ are... are, are Basically, SDN or main justice, if you're going to be like a, a, a the head of the place. But otherwise, it is the Southern District of New York, the District of Columbia, and no particular order here. I guess SDNY is the highest. Southern District of New York. And then you're talking beyond that, District of Columbia, Eastern District of New York. Those are probably all kind of equal. Then you're talking the Central District of California, which is like Los Angeles and Orange County. And then... You're talking probably Northern District of California, Bay Area, high-profile, white-collar stuff up there. Uh, beyond that, then you get into the next tier, which is would be Chicago, Boston, Miami, and then everything else. And Tennessee is certainly, Middle District of Tennessee is certainly in the everything else category. Okay. Left the Justice Department in 17 after being a prosecutor with the agency for more than 16 years. In 2018, he became the chief prosecutor for the special court in The Hague where he became where he investigated crimes in Kosovo. So uh, 2018 crimes in Kosovo, you're talking late 90s crimes in Kosovo. These are very stale cases, although they did I believe uh, arrest a couple of what they call pifwicks or persons indicted for war crimes thereabouts that area. In fact, there was the one guy who looked like he was made of like stone, remember that and he took the cyanide at The Hague and died. He poisoned himself in court. Uh, so he's, you know, by all accounts, of course, he has these glowing reviews from his co-workers. But here's the really strange part, is that it says Mr. Smith will take on the role of special counsel after leaving his current position as a special prosecutor based in The Hague investigating war crimes. He will remain, listen to this, he will remain in the Netherlands for some time, according to the Justice Department, in order to recover from a recent bicycle incident or accident. So he's a triathlete. He races his bike around the Netherlands. And he was in an accident in which he, I understand, broke his leg or something. Now, if you remember, Trump famously um, lambast John Kerry for being in some kind of bicycle race uh, or, or, or racing around on his bike while doing the Iran negotiation in Vienna, Austria, which is where the uh, IAEA is based. And I mean, every other speech just about Trump would say, I promise you one thing, you know, I'll never uh, race a bike and break my leg in the middle of the negotiation. It's like, you know, there's a hundred clips of Trump. I, I, I tried to pick one. There's a hundred of them, though. And it's gratuitous. So you probably heard this. So he's, he's probably biased against Trump on that count alone. Only a couple pictures of this guy. He looks like, I mean, he looks like an absolute alcoholic. I've rarely seen uh, somebody who looks like such a stereotypical alcoholic in the sense that, and what I mean by that, I'm going to be very particular when I say this. What I mean when I say that is that, is that basically the guy um, looks like he's rotting. 
he looks like his his skin um is is rotting away at the seams it's just it's just he looks like he's a corpse like he's a rotting corpse i mean he's not that old he only started practicing law in 94 i think my dad started practicing law in 88 or so um so i mean he's not an old guy i think he's in his 40s that that on its own tells you something i would have expected frankly i would have expected them to say that uh, the guy is um, a registered Republican. I was getting ready for that. Just like they did with Mueller. They say, Mueller's a registered Republican. He can't possibly be anti-Trump. As if there's never been any registered Republicans who are anti-Trump. Of course, this all comes, though, as you know, we talk about, they, they find time to appoint this guy, Jack Smith. And you have Sam Bankman-Fried, who we now know, I mean, stole $300 million at a time. In one go, stole three hundred million. He has not yet been indicted, despite the fact that that's well known, and despite the fact that he has basically admitted to committing, on its face at least, money laundering. Which, by the way, money laundering—the statute can be applied to a whole host of things, not just what you would normally think of as money laundering. Anytime you move money, which was associated with a crime in connection for a crime to fund a crime, that is technically money laundering. Okay. So there's a whole host of things that are money laundering that you wouldn't think of. The statute's very broad. It can be applied to almost anything. Um, but he's admitted to that. He's admitted to conspiracy to commit wire fraud. He's admitted to wire fraud. In DMs that are totally verified, he has posted false statements in connection with furthering the fraudulent scheme on Twitter and deleted other statements, if essentially attempting to cover up the crime, arguably committing obstruction of justice. He has not yet been indicted. Bernie Madoff, when he admitted it to his sons, which, you know, you keep in mind is hearsay, was arrested within 24 hours. Remember, you don't need an indictment to arrest somebody at the federal level. Generally, that's how you do it. Generally, you secure a grand jury indictment first, and then you make the arrest. Usually arrest them and you unseal the indictment simultaneously. Not always, but usually. Uh, that is how it works. But if you have an imminent situation, you can do it with just a charging document, with just a complaint. And then once you do that, you have 30 days to file the indictment. That's the way it works. So that's like, for instance, when Michael Avenatti was indicted, what was was attempting to extort, extort Nike, you had the indictment in the Central District of California. This crime was taking place in the uh, Southern District of New York. And the SDNY people said, well, you have, guys have that indictment. We don't have time to bring this before a grand jury. He's committing the crime as we speak. Now he's tweeting out the stuff he threatened to tweet out that, by the way, turned out not to be true to, to destroy Nike. And is committing honest services wire fraud against his own client in the course of doing so. Honest services wire fraud means you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, somebody considered, you know, kind of somebody who has to be professionally certified and you commit wire fraud. Somebody who should know better, essentially, and you, you defraud your clients or your patients or what have you. We have to arrest him, too. And he was, uh, at the time, in New York. And so they did a charging document. You could do that here, just like they did with Madoff at first. Then within 30 days, you have your indictment. They haven't done that. But they have time to appoint this special counsel. It's just embarrassing. It's just embarrassing. Absolutely embarrassing. Now, as we listened to in that video, Garland said that this has to do with the fact that 
Trump announced for president. Now, here's what I think about all this. I mean, there's the there's the obvious possibility that this could hurt Trump politically, that this is going to be something that would obviously seem to be something that they're going to hang over Trump's head, that they're going to leak selectively, just run it exactly the way that they ran Mueller. I think that's probably the most likely situation. It could be a more effective move on the part of the Biden administration, by the way, to actually have this investigation be even-handed. Like, the best thing Biden could do is actually have this investigation be even-handed, wrap it up by Christmas, or say wrap it up by the middle of January, and find no wrongdoing and be done. That would help Joe Biden. That would make Joe Biden look magnanimous rather than corrupt, especially as Hunter himself remains under investigation uh, by prosecutors in Delaware, and Uh, as Durham continues, despite having one failure after another. But Durham has always been a cover-up man for the establishment. Going back to the Bush era, investigating enhanced interrogation, uh, basically helping the CIA delete certain tapes. And by the way, I mean, I I am a fan of enhanced interrogation. I I know uh, Dr. Mitchell, who who came up with it, ran the program, wrote the book on it, friend of mine, I'm trying to get him on the show, but believe it or not, all these years later, 20, basically 20 years later now, coming up on 20 years later, he is, it is 20 years later, I guess, he is still being sued by various ACLU groups and the same kind of people that come after me for being too mean to terrorists, just so you know. So it's hard to get him on the show because he's always stuck in depositions 20 years later. Sad. But I'm going to get him on at some point. He's a brilliant man, and, and we're going to have him on. But in any event, Durham did that. Now, so there's the political takeaways. Uh, politically, it's just as likely to be a dud or, frankly, just as likely to help Trump as it is to hurt him on the political public opinion side of things. Where this can really hurt Trump, I think, is based on the idea that this makes it very practically difficult for Trump. So, number one, they waited until after Trump announces for president. I believe there's some kind of technicality in which once Trump announces, the RNC can no longer pay his legal bills because they have to be impartial as it relates to different candidates. That's what I understand. Okay. That's what I understand to be the case. If that's not true, uh, I don't know any of you listening, but somebody can refute me on that. So some of you who work at the RNC or work at um, Trump Central who listen to the show can email me, but th- that's what I understand to be the case. So they're going to start burying Trump in legal fees. But the, the bigger thing to me is what they're going to do is, is, is they're going to they're going to torment Trump's family. They're going to subpoena Jared. They're going to subpoena Ivanka and Don Jr. And they're going to put pressure on them. They're going to hurt their businesses where they're managing these slush funds. But, but you know, Jared's managing like four billion or between two and four billion for the Saudis, basically a kickback uh, for helping them out on various foreign affairs issues. He's managing some money for some very wealthy Israelis that maybe manage some of Netanyahu's money, maybe not. And so that's basically Jared's game right now. He can sit on the money and still reap in, I think, oh, 40 million a year in fees without ever having to make one investment. But he is making the investments and it's a good it's a good environment to make the, those sorts of investments. And maybe he'll be able to do it effectively. I, th- I think he probably will. But they're going to start looking into all those deals, looking into all those arrangements. The scope will broaden and it'll it'll cause Jared and Ivanka to put pressure on Trump to drop out of the race, just make you go away, all of that stuff. 
and, it, and really what it's going to, I think, most seriously affect is Trump's ability to hire people for his campaign. Because if you're going to go work for Trump's campaign, which I would encourage you to do, start volunteering if you know if you can. If you if you're somebody who wants to work at the Department of Treasury, as a person who's on our team, if you want to work at IRS, work at FBI, work at DOJ, work at State Department, work at CIA, on our side of the ball as a Schedule C political appointee. The way that you begin to make that likely right now is you start volunteering for the Trump campaign. And this is a high IQ audience that listens to this show. This is not a bunch of dummies. I would say my audience are probably 15 to 20 IQ points ahead of like any podcast that's put on by Charlie Kirk or Jack Posobiec, let's say. And I can tell by the comments and the feedback and the emails I get. So it's going to make it hard, though, because you see, if you're somebody and I don't mean like you can't volunteer right now, that's fine. I'm just talking about when you talk about a campaign manager, when you talk about a, a, a high level campaign advisor, the inner circle that are flying around on the plane with him to to go run the campaign. The problem is that these people now are going to be uh, under the impression, the knowledge, and we'll see if it actually plays out, but likely it will, that they're going to be subpoenaed. They're going to have to hire lawyers they better be rich because they're going to end up spending at least $50,000 on lawyers just to fend off special counsel nonsense, process subpoenas, just deal with the investigation. This is if they're not indicted on some made up thing. Some of them will be foolish enough to talk to FBI agents, even though it is absolutely something you should never, ever, ever do. You refer them to your lawyer. You never talk to them. And then they're going to end up in process crime situations the way that Michael Flynn did. So that's going to be a difficult thing. It's going to make it hard to hire people. But I'm telling you, I think Trump has a momentum right now. I think even the biggest DeSantis fans admit that DeSantis is going to have a very hard time, uh, next to impossible time, trying to beat Trump in a primary. They admit that for the most part. They say he has a better chance in the general, but they, they admit that Trump can't be beat in a primary, essentially. And uh, there's, a, there's a new music video going around of Trump, and I, I'm not going to play it here because it's, it's just... You know, I mean, it'll get us copyright issues on YouTube and it'll also, it won't make sense if you watch it or if you're just listening on the podcast app, but a new video, it's just kind of the, the Trump aesthetic is what the country needs. Okay. Quickly here. I, I got to move here. I got to roll. This show is uh, Jesus. We're already at uh, 42 minutes. Um, but we have uh, an update on the Paul Pelosi situation here. Um NBC San Francisco local news affiliate and now other news outlets as, w- as well have confirmed that Paul Pelosi opened the door. It was not a break in the door exigent circumstances deal based on the body camera. Paul Pelosi opened the door and he walked back into the home. He didn't want run out of the home. He walked back in and he was not fighting over the hammer as he opened it with one hand, as we heard and read, uh, let's say in the FBI's affidavit of this. So what we now know is that the FBI that their version of events is incorrect. They had a very junior FBI special agent write it up and it's not correct based on the body cam video that is now out. And the San Francisco DA says that Paul Pelosi will need to explain potentially to a jury why he did that. Now, let me just give you a, an Occam's razor. Okay. Let me just give you a simple explanation for why this may have seemed so bizarre. Can I give you that? 
I mean, mostly people on my show are not going to like, you know, have a meltdown if I present anything other than the leading conspiracy theory on a story. The simple explanation would be this. Paul Pelosi is 82 years old. As you get older, a lot of people have trouble sleeping. What do they do? They take Ambien or they take Lunesta, one of these hypnotic type sleep aids. And the issue with taking hypnotic type sleep aids is that if you either don't go to bed, you're not on the pillow ready to fall asleep, or you're awakened in the middle of the night while they're in your system, uh, what can then happen uh, is that um, you can act very bizarre, uh, delirious even. I knew somebody who um, would wake up in the middle of the night on Ambien and he would start cooking things, but it was his, his wife would come out and she'd find him um, with the stove on with Fruit Loops in a pan with ketchup on the Fruit Loops, stirring them and like delirious. And she'd have to try to coax him into bed and he would be like in a waking dream. And so one thing that could prescribe for potentially strange behavior here is that Paul Pelosi was simply on Ambien, as are millions of people, particularly older people in this country, in order to sleep. And the Ambien is the kind of awake, but not really, and it's dream and it's awake, and you, you just don't act the way that you think you'd act. I've only taken Ambien like uh, four times in my life, or Lunesta, it's very similar, probably two times in Ambien twice. And um, I never had that issue. I mean, it made me fall asleep very quickly, but when I'd wake up or something for whatever reason, I wouldn't feel delirious at all. So maybe it's the dosage. I don't know. Different people react different ways. Not everyone suffers those kind of side effects. In fact, they're quite rare. But um, there are those stories, people going out driving on it in the middle of the night, not remembering it, being pulled over. They're like awake and asleep at the same time as they're pulled over. Uh, people going out shopping and they're asleep. They don't remember any of it. They're basically asleep. And what essentially happens is like they go to pull out their credit card and they, they're, they're sticking their ID in the machine to pay. And the person says, uh, sir, that's your ID. And they just keep sticking it in. You know, these weird kind of hypnotic things that happen. So look, I'm just trying to give you a, a chance here to consider something that could happen. Um, uh, music. I'm not a big music person. I mean, I'm really not like this might sound really psychotic, but I'll tell you if like music ceased to exist tomorrow, if there were no way to ever listen to music again, I'd be okay with life. I mean, it wouldn't be life ending for me or, or depressing. I'd, I'd figure it out. Not a big music person. I mean, I, I like a catchy song at the right time as much as the next person, with the right energy and all that, but it's just not, I'm not a music enthusiast. I'm not a music connoisseur. Like there are those people that put like in their bio on whatever site, like music lover. I enjoy music. It's just not me. So um, I'm not saying that you know, I'm looking here in the chat. I'm not saying that he's allowed an ambient excuse. Roseanne down the road is uh, not. Yeah, I'll tell you what. When you're like, when the ambience first kicking in, just a couple times I've taken it uh, properly with a prescription, of course. Um, it's like when it's first kicking in, you know, that weird state between awake and asleep where you sometimes have like weird thought loops that don't make sense. You're like, oh, what? 
like, why would I barbecue my computer? Or like, uh, you know, why would I um, play piano with my toes? Or, or you know, just strange th things that don't really connect because your brain's just drifting off. The, the nature in which Ambien does that, the intensity and the strangeness of the things that are floating around back and forth are like much more intense. And you can absolutely see how somebody could take an Ambien and you'd want to have your phone off, your device is off and away from you because you could type some weird stuff that, that makes perfect sense to you while you're, but it makes no sense to you or anyone else without the Ambien. Uh, so something to be careful with these, these hypnotic sleep aids. Okay, Elon has taken over Twitter, of course. He's, he's brought back Trump. He has said that he is not bringing back Alex Jones. I'm not sure if that's going to remain the case or not. He's brought back Project Veritas. Uh, he's brought back ALX, uh, Alex, the uh, meme creator, uh, Laura Loomer, myself, uh, Jack Berkman, uh, Ali Alexander. We remain banned as of the taping of this show. I've put in uh, various appeals to that. And um, we'll see what happens. I remain in wait and see, as I have been. People have informed me that Trump would be brought back. He was. That's good news. Um, we have some reports out about SBF uh, pocketing 300,000 or 300,000, 300 million. Um, he uh, cashed in 300 million during a funding spree. Now, this uh, 300 million he took out of a fundraising round of $420,690,000 as to indicate 420,69. Haha, we smoke pot and we, whatever he does, you know. So honestly, you, you see somebody that does a 420,69 fundraising round and invests in that at a $28 billion valuation or something. And you almost think they deserve it because it's like, you know, there are some things in life you can joke about. There are a lot of things in life you can joke about. A sense of humor is a good thing. But when it comes to raising $22 billion valuation fundraising rounds, is that not a time to take things a little bit seriously? I guess not for these people, and they've now lost it. Uh, and, you know, the other part about this is that he is pleading, basically, uh, that is Sam Bankman-Fried is pleading sort of incompetence and uh, I don't know, just confused. But you have to bear in mind here, somebody said this on Twitter, Caroline Ellison, the, the homely looking chick, beyond homely, I'd say, a Stanford degree in mathematics, Sam Tribuco, MIT degree in mathematics, SBF, uh, MIT degree in physics and mathematics. These are not degrees that you get easily. These are not degrees that you get if you're a midwit or a moron. Uh, so these are people that it's it seems very clear premeditated and and very systematically and methodically carried out this fraud. You know, another question all this is, where does Tether sit in all of this? Nobody seems to know a single fixed income trader that has executed a trade with Tether. Tether says they have something like 30 to $66 billion in fixed income assets, meaning bonds, a lot of U.S. treasuries. Um depending on the day, depending on when you look at their snapshot of whatever balance sheet they claim. But the issue with this is that in order to buy those, you'd have to engage in certain trades. And nobody who trades this stuff, and I've talked to a lot of people, and I'm certainly not the authority on knowing the most number of bond traders. I am not. But I've talked to people who have talked to people, you know, and I've talked to people who would have contact with, say, three, four, five hundred bond traders in total through their network. And none of them know anybody who's ever traded with Tether. 
How is that possible? How do you buy all these bonds without ever doing a transaction with somebody? Remember, this is something that's done a lot of times over the counter through the Bloomberg terminal system. You link up, you trade back and forth and you know where people work. It's verified and you do the trades OTC, not even on a listed exchange. Certainly, they've not been seen in a, in a treasury auction. And, uh, you know, you would think that maybe from time to time they would come to um, interest rate exchanges um, meaning, you know, listed assets. I shouldn't say interest rate exchanges. What I mean is futures exchanges um, in, in interest rate futures, fixed income futures, you know, the 10-year the, the, the treasuries, the two-year treasuries, the euro dollars. Uh, they even have uh, interest rate swap futures contracts that trade, the Euribor, um, you know, uh, all kinds of, you know, interest rate futures that you would use to say hedge your overnight risk in some of these things. A lot of that would be done uh, OTC, but a great deal of it would likely be done on listed exchanges. The problem is um, there's something called the CFTC commitments of traders reports. And if you have a certain size of a position, you know, depending on the contract, 5,000 of them or 10,000 or 1,000, just depending on whether you're talking about sugar or interest rate futures or what have you, you at the end of the week show up on this report that says who you are and what you've got so that you can kind of understand where the risk is in the market. It's a weekly report. Um, Tether has never shown up on this. Their, their parties, their affiliates, their agents, the people who run them, never shown up. Uh, that's kind of strange. The CFTC found that they had engaged in some corruption with regards to their reserves. Um, but instead of continuing their investigation, Tether, uh, Bitfinex or whatever, the you know, parent company that runs it, uh, just settled the investigation, paid the CFTC to go away some $1.4 million, and then the CFTC just went away. So I think Tether is a house of cards. That's going to go down. Um, you do have right now uh, one asset that seems to be doing pretty well in what is otherwise a, a very tenuous market in the United States, a bear market, broadly speaking, a very volatile market, uh, and that is Grinder. Uh, Grinder, the gay dating app, or what they call LGBTQ, principally I understand to be a gay dating app, uh, held an IPO via a SPAC on Friday. In its IPO premiere, it uh, basically more than doubled. It's up over 300% on the first day. So it seems that there is one line of business that's doing well in the United States, uh, and that is Grinder. I wonder what that has to do with that shooting at the gay place, if anything. it's Maybe there's a tenuous effect between people's psychology and that coming out. And First of all, if you see somebody shoot up a gay club, chances are there's something in their life that's gay. From a criminological standpoint, if you look into somebody who does something like that, they're engaged in some kind of gay thing. And they're at odds with it. And it's something they're doing oftentimes, oftentimes. And I'm not joking around here. It's like when you see a fire at a synagogue, it's almost all, it almost always turns out to be a Jewish kid who at some point attended that synagogue, a troubled young man, typically. Uh, I mean, countless cases, countless cases of this. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's uh, something that, you know, motivated, what have you. But you can tell a lot by the type of the attack. Uh, did they, were they familiar with the location? This is what investigators do to identify unsubs. And uh, something talked about a bit in that book I, I talked about recently, The Anatomy of Motive. Good book to read. 
Um, so if somebody shoots up a gay bar like this and they, you're just not sure why, a lot of times there's some gay thing going on in their life that they're conflicted about, they're at odds with, and this is how they lash out. Of course, this person had a background of uh, bomb threats and standoffs with the police and all of that. So, yeah, it's very weird. But uh, grinder up big. Meanwhile, on Friday, Liz Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes, that is, the founder of Theranos, sentenced to 135 months in prison, uh, set to report in April. That would be 11 and a quarter years, 11.25 years in prison. I got to tell you, I think it's just awful. It's just an awful sentence. Pregnant as she walks into court, very pregnant by the looks of it. And, you know, the prosecutors wanted 17 years. She wanted 18 months. Basically, the idea is she raised $140 million or so from venture capital. They alleged that her technology was not in the stage that she claimed it was, that she made material misrepresentations. By the best I can tell, this Sunny character, this guy she was dating, this Indian guy, was the real fraudster um, and not her. She comes from D.C. money, a D.C. moneyed family, establishment family, but low profile and... um, Gosh, you know, it's just hard to see that the pictures of her with, you know, pregnant and she's got the other child at home and she's got a big husky uh, dog and or a medium sized husky, I guess, but a a husky and another dog. And she's got, uh, I guess, a horse and she's on the ranch and she seems to have really found her true identity at at an older age. That is, of course, for being a mother, but seems to be much happier now than she ever was doing that phony voice and raising money for blood tests or some damn thing seems to be much happier now. And, you know, yeah, somebody mentions in the chat here, she had 11 years because all those government people were involved. Yeah. They felt basically embarrassed and they felt like they were used. And so, you know, there's this claim that she basically, you know, the real aggravating matter of this is there's this claim that she, uh, basically phonied up blood tests from the actual customers of the blood tests and told them, for instance, you had a miscarriage when you didn't. So the woman drinks herself to death, but it turns out she actually had a pregnancy, but now she doesn't because she thought she miscarried Uh, all this kind of stuff. Uh, These claims were never really definitively proven in court at all. I mean, they were always sounded a bit tenuous and Liz Holmes had the audacity to take on a couple of borderline monopolies. I guess you can call them duopolies or oligopolies, Quest Labs, Abbott Labs, uh, LabCorp, Walgreens. And they weren't happy about this. And, you know, she's, she, I mean, it's just an awful sentence. So, you know, what I really hope is that she immediately appeals both her conviction and her sentence to the Ninth Circuit. And uh, it's just crazy. I mean, you, you, there, there's an extent to which this is going to have a chilling effect. Because increasingly what we have in this country is we have a situation in which, look, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're if you're raising money for a business, a project, especially one that's very innovative or, or audacious or, or exotic, there's always a degree to which you're going to say, yeah, you know, we're starting SpaceX here and we're going to dock with the space station. And you have to convey confidence about your plan to do that. If you don't convey any confidence, then you're not going to raise any money. And then anybody can always say, well, Elon conveyed confidence. But in fact, the situation within the company was that they had real doubts about their and, 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 and all those emails and all those things can be made to look you, make you look so bad if it doesn't work out or if it works out, then it doesn't. 
And so the issue is now you have a case in this country in which you have a lot of investors out there that want to invest in things like Theranos, that want to invest in things like uh, SpaceX or Tesla or um, want to invest in Uber. They want to do that. They want the risk. Or so they say. They sign on the dotted line and they sign on the idea that they could lose everything. And then what happens is if everything works out and everybody makes a billion dollars, fantastic. And if it doesn't work out, as is going to be the case the vast majority of the time, if it doesn't work out, well, then people cry fraud. And they say, well, after we've subpoenaed everything and drudged out all your emails and made them look like this, well, uh, now what we say is that you see, you told us you were confident but in this email. You said, man, I don't know if we can do this. It's really tough. And therefore, it was fraud when you raised the money. This is what happened to Scarelli in that whole case. None of, and the crazy part is he found out to make how to make other money and paid all the people back. None of them had actually lost any money. And yet they said, well, he wasn't exactly straightforward about the financial reporting and they hadn't even lost money. And so it's a dangerous thing, you know, to go out there and start a new business now because it's like if it works out, everybody celebrates. And if it doesn't work out, they say it's fraud. And like at a bare minimum, you get investigated for fraud and sued even though people signed on the dotted line that they could lose it all and then some and they sign on the dotted line and it's a situation where man it's like you want to start a business like that you have to wonder about you know maybe you should do it in singapore maybe you should do it in the bahamas maybe it's it's just hard to say because increasingly it's just it's just it's a it's a tough situation you know it's like if liz holmes if liz holmes had stayed in business long enough to make it to covid she would have been, they would have made billions on tests for COVID. But now you're talking 11.25 years in prison? For what? It's it's clearly a punishment. It's not about her being a threat to the public. Like Avenatti is an economic threat to the public, right? Like he will go out, or, or Sam Bankman-Fried, Avenatti will go out and he'll go rip off more paraplegics if he's not in prison. Or he'll come and try to kill me, which he is essentially threatened to do in many cases. And I mean... That little punk walked up to me at five foot six, walked up to me in a courtroom or in a courthouse near the cafeteria, downtown LA, and, you know, all but completely threatened to kill me. And then three days later, he was, thank God, arrested. But man, that was a dangerous son of a bitch, Michael Avenatti. On top of, you know, dragging out and beating his girlfriend and then blaming me for that, saying she was an undercover agent. It's like, dude, you dated her for 18 months before anybody ever heard of you. Okay. So you're th saying, I, got her from Estonia, planted with her. Give me a break. So it's just kind of wild. But Liz Holmes, hopefully she appeals this and um, does okay. Another argument to add to your deregulation thesis. That's correct. For those of you who don't know, there's a new Substack article I wrote on deregulation. Also another Substack on Trump's foreign policy. We don't have time for that on this show. Uh, I have a question here. You can send in your questions uh, for each show with or without a donation. Of course, the show is supported by you, not by advertisers. You can donate to the show at Real Jacob Bowl on Cash App, or you can uh, also uh, use uh, jacobwoll.org slash podcast. You can do a, refer a recurring donation there, jacobwoll.org slash podcast. That's through the Gumroad platform. Works really well. So Cash App, Real Jacob Bowl, or Gumroad, uh, you can reach at jacobwoll.org slash podcast. Uh, you can send in your notes at jacobwall.org slash contact. And we go here to one from Austin. He writes, hey, Jacob, Austin here. My girlfriend told me she went to four years of high school with this Caroline Ellison, the uh, FTX girl. A small world. 
Uh, she said Caroline was the nerdy, quiet type. I guess those are the ones who we should be most worried about. You know, people who went to high school with Avenatti. I was once interviewed on a podcast um, that Mike Cernovich would host um, with a guy named Mike Bolin. Great guy, real estate and big time real estate guy in California at a Napa Valley, Mike Bolin. And Mike Bullen, believe it or not, went to high school with Avenatti, with Michael Avenatti. And he was described the exact same way, quiet, nerdy type. It goes to the ones we have to worry about. That's right. Uh, anyway, uh, there's no way Caroline can escape justice in this case, right? I mean, I had attempted to flee to Dubai. I think probably not, but maybe she testifies and they drop things. It's just hard to say, but I think probably she's going to have to do some time or something, even if she testifies. Um yeah, it's tough. And and billions of rich people's money. Yeah, there were accounts up to like $270 million that lost it all. There are like 10 accounts over $100 million at FTX. So it says, what are the logistics of fleeing U.S. jurisdictions? You know, it's not exactly clear what they are. I don't really know. And the other part is no extradition. You have to bear in mind, no extradition means there's no extradition treaty meaning there's no standard process to extradite between the two countries. That does not mean that they never extradite under any circumstances. You have to remember that. It does not mean that. So, for example, Dubai has no extradition treaty with the United States. That does not mean that they never extradite. Okay? It does not mean that. For example, just recently there was somebody, Dubai has become basically the capital for white-collar fraud, fraudsters, criminals, and whores, um, white-collar criminals and, and prostitutes. Um, that's what it's a capital for. It has a very sleazy reputation now in the world among those who know. Very sleazy. They're going to have to change that or the place is going to go bust because you just cannot exist as a place that is just, I mean, Miami's kind of that way, but it's not really just known for fraudsters and prostitutes. Dubai is like over the top. There's just nothing else besides that there in terms of people now. Um, and now I'm going to get comments on this video from Dubai bots because they have these various um, programs used to monitor podcasts and they, they comment and say, Dubai is great. Dubai is the best. What are you talking about? Go to hell. I'm going to get those now. But in any event, that's what it is. Now, uh, there was this fraudster named Hush Puppy that did these uh, hacks in which, uh, and I'm going to save you the time here. Basically, they, they hack into a law firm's email somehow or other using phishing usually. And then when the law firm goes to do a big escrow transaction between two clients or between a client and somebody else, they send a follow-up email say, oh, damn it, I sent you the wrong account. Actually, wire it here. And they ripped off, like, say, the, the Manchester United soccer team was going to pay somebody $50 million or something. And they sent it to a different account. And then it gets wired to 10 different accounts. And they did that to them. They did it to a bunch of people. He was this guy who had this extremely flamboyant Instagram based out of Dubai, Nigerian originally. And he had ripped off so many people. The U.S. finally wanted him. And the U.S. went with the Dubai authorities. And they busted into his apartment, arrested him. And he is in a jail in California right now in a federal detention facility. Um, Hush Puppy was his name. Hush Puppy, Nigerian scammer. You look that up. Big articles on that. So the fact that there's no extradition did not save him. Okay. Because he was too much of a threat. And Dubai, the Emirates, they have relationships with the United States. And they put enough pressure, they go get him. The other part is that the United States can simply abduct you. Okay. Uh, from if you're overseas, whether you're a U.S. citizen or not. The case law for this was tested in relation to the Mexican doctor who tortured Kiki Camarena on behalf of the cartels. Bill Barr, at the time attorney general under George H.W. Bush, said, go grit him. And they went and got him. Um, a combination of DEA agents off duty and some bounty hunters 
basically abducted him and brought him to the United States for justice. A very left-wing uh, judge let him off and sent him back to Mexico, if you can believe that. Sickening. But as the case was appealed through the system, the Supreme Court came down very clearly and said, if you're a fugitive from justice, the United States can simply abduct you. Okay? Other cases in which members of, then at the time still called SEAL Team 6, members of, uh, then at the time still called Delta Force, now referred to respectively as TAC Devron, not development group. Now it's known as TAC Devron and, um, and uh, Combat Applications Group, CAG, at least last time I checked. Um, they operated undercover in uh, the former Republic of, uh, of, uh, of, of Yugoslavia. You know, it broken up, going after these Pifwicks, sometimes dropping them off at the Hague, I think in one or two cases, bringing them to the United States. And they're like military operating without military authorization, using a presidential finding, in some cases using Title X authorities under the DOD's auspices, in other cases using Title 50 authorities under the CIA's auspices of covert action, you know, but grounding people up. So the U.S. can just simply abduct you too. I mean, members of, 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 of SEAL Team, I don't think it was even SEAL Team 6, I think it was SEAL Team 2 went in famously, found one of these guys who operated a hospital, talked their way into the back office, chloroformed him, tossed him into a van and, you know, wheelchaired him into a van, chloroformed him, knocked him out, put him in a van, and he woke up in The Hague, gave him some ketamine once he was in the van, and they woke up in The Hague. So, you know, the U.S. operates however they please, you know, however they please. They, they operate the way they want to operate. It's, 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 Quite, there's questions about how proper it is from an international law standpoint, but that's the way it does actually work. Um, Sonny Balwani will likely get 20 plus years. Yeah, I think so too. Crypto trading YouTubers based in Dubai getting novice traders wrecked. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, it's a center for scam artists and they have very favorable tax there. And, you know, even though the U.S. might kidnap some of the worst of the worst, like that hush puppy who's a Nigerian citizen, not a U.S. citizen, bring him here. There was another Nigerian guy who was in Dubai who was an oil uh, minister who was very corrupt, had a bunch of properties in the U.S. I think we got him too. So it's, it's very, it's very arbitrary, you know, who they pick out and it just kind of like, if there's enough press and enough aggravation and they want to do it, they, they'll pick you up anywhere if they can find you. So U.S. citizen or not, U.S. indictment or not, drop you off at the Hague. Who the hell knows? It, it, it's very, it's very uh, daunting a task to be a fugitive. Um, you know, there's a story of Mark Dreyer, for example, who was a lawyer, uh, ran a Ponzi scheme law firm, essentially thieved from various former clients of his, you know, identity theft, all of this. He was in Dubai. He could have stayed in Dubai and he came back to the U.S. and, you know, he pled and he got 20 years. So... And a lot of these stories. Anyway, uh, look, in other news, I just want to bring you something very briefly here uh, before we get into the final segment about soft dollar costs and rebates. Uh, this is in Latin America. I've gotten several reports out of CIA folks I know, uh, former and current Latin America division now called uh, Latin America, what is it, Latin America Focus Group or something? Anyway, uh, no longer called the division. It's a different uh, name. Uh, but here's here's what's happening in Latin America, kind of another news story we don't hear a lot about. The, the region is crumbling uh, under the weight of total corruption, debt, 
uh, inflation fueled economic collapse, inflation of like, you know, 60, 70, 80%, not, not the kind of inflation we deal with here, and, and complete social depravity. This has basically been aided by the fact that, that China has gone in using their intelligence services and other things and has helped these uh, communists across Latin America seize power from Ecuador to Peru to Mexico, basically has a communist leader now, Brazil now, of course, the, the election there recently. They've gone in and done this, and it, it's very, very bad news Um Soon, as I understand it from these analysts and people I've, I've known um, who, who are CIA folks, the bottom will totally fall out on the economies there, completely fall out. And the idea is that you're going to see a massive inflow uh, facilitated in part by these globalist entities like Soros, who will hand out cards and the like to these people to fund their trips up and caravans and all of that, like we've seen before. But partly just on their own volition, uh, the United States could be flooded with 10, 20, 30 million people from Latin America when this thing totally goes bust. So that's another thread we're going to uh, follow here on the show. Now, as promised, I want to talk here about soft dollar costs. What are they? Soft dollar rebates. Very hard to identify what these are. The financial industry does not want you to know about them. So I'm going to just give you a case study example. We can talk more about it if it's not clear on a later episode, because we're already running very long here. And I started late and I've got, I got to get moving here. Uh, but let's say you have a mutual fund. Okay. You invest in it and you think the fees are really low. Uh, the mutual fund has to trade, say, fixed income, right? Let's say it's a, they have some bonds in the fund, even stocks, but let's just say bonds, because with bonds, you have to use, essentially, to get the data, you have to use Bloomberg. I mean, you don't, you don't really have another option. Uh, and even to facilitate the trades between various parties, you have to use a Bloomberg terminal. I have used Bloomberg terminals before, and um, that's how Mike Bloomberg made his money, is with the terminal. The news network was later. I think it's a loss leader for them. Um, but the terminal is, is, is a software. They, they also sell a hard, hardware solution where they bring in the, the computers, set them all up for you. At a minimum, they should be this keyboard that has a fingerprint scanner. So you only one person can use each terminal in all reality. Um, and it's a, just a necessary product. They're basically a monopoly. Nobody has ever really challenged them. Thomson Reuters offers a service that is, yeah, it's not that good. Yeah, it's just not. And by the time you want to place the trades, you have to use the Bloomberg thing anyhow. Um, it's okay. I mean, you know, some people use it, okay? There was this place called uh, money.net that did a web-based version. I have used the money.net trial and their paid version a couple of times over the years. It has the look of a Bloomberg terminal, has almost none of the data, and lacks such basic features as being able to see the spread between the twos and the tens doesn't let you see the price of future spreads, much less the depth of market. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, it works for very few amateur hour people, but it's not anywhere near a competitor, even though that's what they promised to be. So it's basically a monopoly. And the thing about Bloomberg terminals is even before you subscribe to the real-time data subscriptions from the various exchanges, which you then have to do, it's awfully expensive. When I used it, it was, um, it was I think it was exactly 2000 a month per terminal. By the way, that's not the hardware. That's just the software, and they they overnight you the keyboard. And part of the reason they have such an advantage is their customer service. If you ever have a problem that you can't fix over the phone with them, somebody comes and sees you. If they have to freaking fly in the next day, they fly in, okay. But they come and see you if there's a technical issue. If they have to fly in overnight, they do. 
And they're there within 24 hours guaranteed, often much faster. Their phone customer service is off the charts. They're the, just the, the, the top of the line product for financial services. I'd love to have one now just for this show. I, I just can't justify 2000 plus a month right now. It's probably gone up a little bit. If we get some more money into the show, donate, of course, Cash App and Gumroad. I, I will do that, actually, just for the data to be able to bring you some, some good data for the show. I just can't justify it right now. Like I said, awfully expensive. Um, so it's like 2000 a month. You figure if you're doing the hardware too, which a lot of people are doing 2400 Now, let's say you're a mutual fund, you trade bonds, you have to get 100 of these damn things. Well, that's awfully expensive. So here's what happens. Bloomberg then comes in, in collaboration with some clearinghouse, and they say, hey, we will um, set it all up for you. You don't pay a dime. And you're like, what? These things are 2000 a piece. We need 100 That's uh, $200,000 a month. You don't pay a dime. You don't pay a dime. And you figure, well, huh. Okay, sounds good. And the way that Bloomberg makes back their money is that when they show that mutual fund, the price of a bond or, or the price of a share of Apple, just to make this really simple, instead of saying, just for example, $100 and one cents and a hundred dollars and two cents for the bid ask spread, they might make it a little wider by a penny on each side or half a penny on each side even. And in collaboration with the clearinghouse or whoever's doing the actual execution of the trade, they keep the penny. And so they offer the free software and they're not paying the tab for the Bloomberg terminals. They're making it up on every single trade. They end up paying a lot more, by the way, doing it this way. But it's not they who pay a lot more. It's you, the investor in the mutual fund. And maybe it's your pension at work who invests in the mutual fund or what have you. So this plays through and you can never, ever. I mean, there's some disclosure about it in, in the fine print someplace, but you can never, ever get a true sense of what it really costs you, uh, these soft dollar fees. Meanwhile, Mike Bloomberg becomes worth $100 billion dollars. That's, in essence, a soft dollar cost. There's many more examples, many more ways it can play out. But that is one way in which it happens, and it gives you a sense for this. So this is a big scheme that goes on throughout the financial market to basically rip off, you know, the passive investors that get such low costs on everything. You know, it's like you get such low costs, but nobody ever seems to make the same as the market index in these damn mutual funds over the long term. Why is that? Well, this is a big reason among others, but this is a big reason. And uh, soft dollar costs, soft dollar rebates, it's a big way that Bloomberg, Mike Bloomberg has become one of the richest men on earth. Uh, why he's able to charge so much for these terminals and um, and why mutual fund investors and others, um, other types of investors underperform in these various entities because of soft dollar costs. It's not just Bloomberg, but it's, it's, it's many others. So guys, thanks for joining. Support the show. Cash app, Real Jacob. Well, maybe we can get a Bloomberg terminal in here for sake of the data that we could glean from it, which is very valuable. Uh, the research I could bring you would be very valuable. Uh, but it's going to cost, say, 25000 a year. Not cheap. Um, and you can also go to jacobwell.org slash podcast. We're not far away from that, though, being able to do that. Uh, you guys have been a great supporters of the show, really, bringing this independently away from Censored TV. And I know you'll continue to be. You can send your questions, jacobwell.org slash contact. Thanks for joining me today on the show, The Jacob Wolf Show. And I will see you on Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern time. Let's pray we don't lose another Wi-Fi router here. I'll see you then. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for joining today. I appreciate it, even though we're a little bit late. And I will see you 
somebody says office space with soft dollars. Yeah, that's the same premise. You know, fractions of pennies getting sucked out of the system. Yep. Uh, I'll see you on Thursday, 2 p.m. live uh, with these topics and many others in the news. Help you unpack them, help you understand. See you then.